Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It was raining. A rainy day in Hartford knows a dozen different ways to break your heart. And I was sitting in my office trying to avoid at least 11 of them. The name is McEnroe. I guess you could say I'm a private detective. I mean, you could say that. I'm actually not a private detective. But doesn't each one of us harbor that fantasy a little bit of being one of those really cool people that you read about in detective novels, mysteries, crime fiction? And who doesn't love that stuff? I do. Today we're going to look at the whole spread of it, from its earliest origins to its fruition and also to everything that happens on television with Columbo and, you know, Murder, She Wrote, all that kind of stuff. We'll also talk a little bit about our modern addiction to true crime. It's all coming up right after this, unless I get killed during the news. So yeah, we're going to talk today about mysteries, about crime fiction. I mean, even finding the right categorical term, the right taxonomy, uh, is challenging because there are a lot of mysteries that aren't mysteries, right? I mean, I've been reading a lot of uh, Thomas Perry novels lately, and there aren't a whole lot of mysteries in them. It's more a question of how is this whole largely criminal mess going to get resolved? Um, But you can find lots of other examples of that as well. Nonetheless, there is something about the idea of crime fiction, detective fiction, mystery stories, mystery novels. It's, it's a persistent pursuit for all of us, or for most of us. Most of us, A lot of us treat it as escapism. Some of us treat it probably a little bit more seriously than that, and it depends, too, on the writer and the material. But here to get us going, and we will also spill over a little bit later into the world of television mysteries, but we're going to talk right now about uh, print as it were. The Life of Crime uh, is a new book by Martin Edwards. It's uh, de- subtitled Detecting the History of Mysteries and Their Creators. Uh, it clocks in at a modest 724 pages, but it's very, very browsable too. You can sort of you know pick your spots and there's really uh, wonderful notes at the end of each chapter that kind of point you in other directions. Uh, and so Martin Edwards, crime novelist in his own right and author of The Life of Crime, uh, joins us now. Hi, how are you today? I'm very well, Colin. Uh, lovely to be speaking to you from England. So um, it's arguable, and you you do write this, that the crime story is fiction's most popular genre. Uh, make that case. Well, I, I think in terms of sheer sales, uh, the statistics, uh, not that I follow statistics very closely, but I, I, I think they're pretty unarguable. And of course, uh, Agatha Christie is, is still the world's uh, top-selling author of all time. 
so I, I think the case is quite easily made. Uh, there are, of course, very interesting questions as to why that is, uh, and uh, one or two of those uh, questions I've explored in some detail in, in the book you mentioned, Life of Crime. Right. You know, and one of the things that uh, you talk about at the beginning, too, is when do we when do we think this all starts? I mean, arguably, Cain and Abel is crime fiction, assuming that you acknowledge that it's fiction. Uh, and um, or, and one of our guests later on in the show, uh, Gene Seymour, would say the Oedipus is one of the first sleuths. You know, he's trying to figure out, well, what happened? Yeah. Uh, he's trying to unravel a mystery. So, I mean, if you look at it that way, it's been around forever. But there are other ways to look at it to say, well, no, in its current recognizable form, you can sort of see some kind of starting point. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Of, of course, Shakespeare is another uh, great writer who is sometimes claimed as, as a crime writer. But, but I, I think really with the Enlightenment, which came after Shakespeare, uh, you had society changing and the idea of of rational thought, uh, not just God determining who was the guilty and who was the innocent, but uh, but uh, fellow human beings. And I think that really set things in motion. And uh, I, I pinpoint one particular book by uh, a revolutionary written just in, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, a book called Caleb Williams by a guy called William Godwin, is arguably uh, the first crime novel. It's it's a manhunt story. It's certainly got crime in it. Uh, it's it's a pretty uh, dull read for many of us nowadays, but it has a lot of the elements that you find in many later thrillers. So I think that's a good starting point. And then in terms of detective fiction, go over to the States and uh, Edgar Allan Poe and the murders in the Rue Morgue, which many people would say is the first detective story as such. Right. And and with Poe, it's also interesting. I mean, I think also of the subtitle of your book, again, Detecting the Mystery, the History of Mysteries and Their Creators. I mean, Poe is this sort of, he's like a character in one of his own stories or novels. I mean, he is this kind of guy who's beaten down in lots of ways. Um, he has uh, an appetite for uh, women who are perhaps even at that time, inappropriately young. Um, there are mysteries surrounding how he himself died. I mean, in a way, it's kind of not a surprise that he produces one of the early examples of a mystery novel. Well, well, well you're right, Colin, and his, his, his life was, was all too short and had, had plenty of unhappiness in it. But, of course, his demons drove him to write some, some wonderful fiction, including some of the stories, maybe five I, I identify in the book, uh, and others have identified as, as setting the template for much of detective fiction as, as we know it today. Right. And actually, you say that he also may have written one of the very early, if not the earliest, examples of, of the kind of armchair detective. Um, yes. And I would, by the way, you don't, I don't think, mention the, the, him even in the notes in this context, although you mention him in other places. I feel like Nero Wolfe might be the ultimate armchair detect detective. I yeah. mean, in those ar ar novels, Archie Goodwin is constantly trying to get you know, Wolf to do anything other than sit yeah. there and tend yeah. his orchids and get excited about what his cook is making for dinner. But I mean, he didn't even really like to leave the house at all. Well, I, well, I think you're right. And, and there is a very good case to be made uh, that, that Rex Stout did create the ultimate uh, armchair detective in uh, in Nero Wolf, who and, and who uh, appears in so many books and tremendously popular in the States. And, and to some extent, although not perhaps as much so in, in Britain as well. So 
We have to also deal with the argument against crime fiction, and I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that the critic Edmund Wilson uh, in the mid-40s actually wrote two different essays. I think the first one was something called like why we read detective novels or something like that. But then the second one was ca- called something like who cares who killed Roger Ackroyd. Um, and, and he basically argued that this whole genre was wasteful of time and degrading to the intellect. <laughs> <laughs> this is not necessarily a popular viewpoint, but it is, is a viewpoint you can run into from time to time. So I don't know if Edmund Wilson were sitting there in the room with you, what would you be saying to him? Well, uh, um, I think, of course, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And it, I, I do think it, it was the case for much of the 20th century that uh, a, a, quite a large segment of the literary establishment, not just in the States, but in Britain as well, and, and further afield, were quite disdainful of, uh, of detective fiction, crime fiction generally. And, and a lot of the authors of crime fiction and detective fiction didn't, didn't help by being excessively modest about it. So Agatha Christie, who, who was a very modest woman, in one of her books, she gives away four of the uh, solutions to her mysteries because she she assumes that nobody's ever going to want to read them once they've been out uh, out, out in the market for a couple of years but but i think that the the problem with with wilson's argument is, is partly because uh, uh, his criticism is is just excessively sweeping but even if you think about that title who cares who killed uh, Roger Ackroyd. Well, the answer is obvious. It's many millions of people. Uh, the murder of Roger Ackroyd is one of the most successful uh, novels of the 20th century in sales terms. And although that isn't necessarily a guarantee of quality, I do think that there is a level of quality and a level of interest in some of the books that were being written in the 20s and 30s, the so-called golden age of detective fiction, that critics simply didn't realise at the time. It's only in recent years where there's been a kind of rediscovery of these books that that their their range and and depth has been appreciated properly. Right. And I think the people who didn't make that mistake were often other writers. Uh, I mean, Kingsley Amos, for example, said that John D. MacDonald, quote, is by any standards a better writer than Saul Bellow. Only MacDonald writes thrillers and Bellow is a human heart chap. So I so guess who wears the top grade laurels? Um, and and I, I think I could pretty easily produce a similar quote about a lot of other um, writers of this kind of genre fiction, including, for that matter, Ross MacDonald. People said the yes. same, almost the word for word, almost the same thing about him. He's just a, a terrific writer. It just so happens that he writes in this particular genre. Um, But it's sort of weird that that writers get that. You know, Stephen King gets it, um, but critics don't necessarily get it. And I wonder whether there's sort of a, I don't know, a literary class distinction being made. I mean, people who spend a lot of time reading quote-unquote literary fiction, maybe they just feel like they need something to look down their noses at. (laughs) Well, I, I, I think you've probably hit on something, Colin. And I do think that in the 20th century, that was particularly common. I also think that it has become much less common in recent years. It still exists, this snobbery, but I think it's on the decline. The the war hasn't been won, as I say in the book, but the, the battles are being won because you've got um, mainstream literary writers of, of quality uh, who are um, using many of the elements of detective and crime fiction in different and very interesting ways in, in their work. You only have to think of somebody like Joyce Carol Oates, 
for instance, in, in your country, uh, or A.S. Byatt with, with her Booker Prize winning novel, Possession, uh, or Eleanor Catton, The Luminaries, another Booker Prize winning novel, which, which definitely have um, the influence of uh, uh, crime and detective fiction uh, as a very prominent feature of the writing. So, so I think that the the case against detective uh, fiction has been weakened by the entry of so many high caliber writers into the field who who glance at detective fiction or, or embrace it. You mentioned Kingsley Amis. He actually wrote uh, a novel, The Riverside Villas Murder. Uh, in the early 1970s, which was really a, a, a kind of homage to a classic golden age detective fiction and a pretty good one, too. Right. And I also think that some of the mistake of even Wilson's title is thinking that mystery, that the, the fascination with mystery novels or crime fiction, whatever we're going to call it, um, involves caring who killed Roger Penrose. Because I read a lot of this stuff and I don't care who killed Roger Penrose. I'm usually in it for some other reason. I mean, sometimes you're just in it you're along for the ride with just a terrific narrator and I, who is you know, your protagonist and who is probably pretty close to being the voice of your author. I mean, I'm, you know, people read Raymond Chandler, I think, for Marlowe's voice as much of it. I think of all those. I wrote down some of the similes. You know, I was as hollow and empty as the spaces between the stars. You know, he looked about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel food. I mean, you just want to hang around with that guy who's just tossing off those things and rhapsodizing about, you know, the fly in his office singing Pagliacci or something. I mean, it, there's just sometimes that's what we're there for, right, to kind of join forces with a, a heroic but somewhat downtrodden, you know, figure, that that detective. Oh, absolutely. And you certainly, I, I think, don't tend to read Chandler mainly for the plot of the puzzle because sometimes there are elements of it uh, that, that aren't adequately resolved, like who killed the chauffeur in the big sleep, things like that. But it's the writing, it's the quality, it's the mood of the times as well. The character of Marlowe is is uh, uh, beaten down integrity, that kind of thing. And I think that you're also right. There are, there are a number of different reasons why people read crime and detective fiction, um, all, I, I think, equally uh, valid, but, but different, just as there are different types of crime and detective fiction. And simply, uh, I, I argue in the book, simply because one likes a particular uh, branch of this uh, very, very broad genre, it doesn't mean that we, we don't have permission to like all the other branches as well. And part of the idea of the book is to encourage people to you know, cast their net wide and read uh, perhaps authors, perhaps novels that they might not have thought were their cup of tea, but are actually uh, books with a lot of interest and a lot of value, a lot of uh, uh, quality, a lot of entertainment uh, value as well as the literary quality. I think there's also, I mean, just to go back to that idea of the Enlightenment, well, a few centuries into the Enlightenment, Enlightenment we get Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes, I think, is sort of, you know, uh, an enlightenment, enlightenment embodiment in the sense that, I mean, his essential presentation is if you're smart enough, if you know enough, if you pay enough attention, if you ingest reality sufficiently so, so that you so that you're in command of all of its details, you can arrive at the truth, which is, I think, you know, a, a, a kind of Thomas Locke kind of notion, right, that, uh, that there's a way in which 
Holmes is the exaltation of that idea. The smart person can figure something out. Well, that that's right. And this idea that there is one solution, if you can pick up all the clues, is, is, is very, very appealing. And it's one very important strand of crime fiction because it, it gives us certainty. Uh, but, but of course, there are other types of crime fiction where uncertainty prevails. Uh, Patricia Highsmith, for example, Strangers on a Train, Talented Mr. Ripley. These are different types of crime fiction but uh, but but equally wonderful to read and enjoy you know 60 years 70 years after the books were first written right and and i think um well highsmith was also an interesting example i've as i think i alluded to i started reading the work of this guy thomas perry because one of his books was adapted into this tv thing called the old man uh and perry's novels frequently like highsmith they don't always have detectives um, they have bad actors and worse actors, you know, and a few good actors, and they have victims, you know, and and it's you're sort of you're sort of the detective when you read some of these. You're sort of thinking, how is this all going to be figured out? Well, well, that that's right, and there are there are inverted mysteries, as they're sometimes called, going back to the 1910s, uh, with a writer called Austin Freeman, a British uh, British doctor, who wrote a lot of very good, very accomplished. Uh, detective novels, which Raymond Chandler was a big fan of, by the way. So so the idea of following the criminal uh, goes back uh, some considerable time. And and it can be done in quite a number of ways. Thomas Perry, you, you've mentioned, is a very good example. And, and there are many others in, in different forms of crime fiction. If we think of Gone Girl, that's, uh, that's a book which in some ways looks back to the past and Wilkie Collins, clearly an influence on Gillian Flynn, I, I, I think she, she would uh, uh, be the first to say, but equally very contemporary in its style and, and this question of unreliable narrators, which, of course, brings us back to uh, the murder of Roger Ackroyd, the <laughs> ultimate uh, unreliable narrator story. Right. I think a, another hangover from Holmes, too, is the detective as possessor of kind of randomized knowledge because Holmes can't really prepare for any particular case. You know, he, he, he's, he's essentially and implicitly prepared for everything. Um, and, and I think that kind of hangs over. I, I think about even like Colin Dexter's Morse. Inspector Morse is, you know, an ox. He kind of washed out of Oxford because of a broken heart or something. And he's still really into opera and crossword puzzles and stuff. And a little bit more recently, Adrian McKinty, almost all of his heroes are these kind of polymaths. I mean, they might have horrible heroin habits or be former IRA gunmen or something, but they know all kinds of things about jazz and Greco-Roman history and stuff like that. I mean, to me, that's one of the pleasures of a certain kind of detective is spending some time with a guy who's just, or or woman, who is just interesting. He's just an interesting person and has brought some of those qualities to bear on a criminal problem. Well, yes, and, and they're very often outsiders, aren't they, like Holmes and, and, and also like Morse. Uh, so, so I, th- I think you're right that it's this uh, interesting, unusual, and and also slightly distant quality that uh, that we find appealing, even if we, if even if we're very different as people from the characters we like reading about. 
Um, there are some new areas, or at least relatively new er- areas uh, of interest, although I think as you point out, Scandinavian noir actually has been around for a while, or it's kind of come in waves. But but right now, there's there's a real vogue for it. I am as guilty as anybody else. I loved the novel, The Chestnut Man. I thought it was just tremendous. Uh, and I've, I've actually discovered another Danish writer whose first name is UC, and I can never remember the rest of his name. But, um, but there's something... I, it's, it's sort of odd. Here we have these kind of high, highly functioning socialist democracies, you know, where there's pretty clearly a sense of community cohesion, you know, and and but everybody's murdering everybody else in fiction. Why are, why would that be? Why would we be drawn to that? Or maybe the more interesting question is why would those cultures be producing what are sometimes exceptionally dark uh, and, and exceptionally violent or garish murder mysteries? Well. I think one of the points that some of those writers, people like Henning Mankell and before him, uh, Mai Shirwell and Poe Walu, one of the points they were making is that beneath the surface of these apparently tranquil societies, there's, there's quite a lot of violence brewing. And of course, what we've seen in recent years in Scandinavia has, has been one or two eruptions of that violence in a very terrible way. Mm-hmm. And also a shift in in political outlooks and makeup uh, uh, over the years. So so in some ways, you, you might argue that, that Mankell and, and the others were, were foretelling uh, um, developments uh, within the society which, which they hoped wouldn't, wouldn't arise, but they were conscious of, of what was going on beneath the surface. And I, I think that's uh, uh, very interesting and perhaps another reason, yet another reason why, why crime fiction at, at a high level has, has something interesting to offer. Uh, and, and these books, if we look at the old, very old books, they're, they're, they're very interesting, I think, as social documents. We, we see people and the way things were in Britain and elsewhere um, in, in a way that you don't necessarily get from the history books, but you, you see life as it as it was, it's fictionalized, and it may be set in a country house, but uh, but you you get an idea of of the attitudes of people and what's actually going on in in the society. So so I think that that's yet another reason to uh, to find these books, including the books of the past, very very interesting. Yeah, you know, Stephen King always talks about how horror uh, often reflects the actual anxieties uh, of a time. Uh, I mean, the Amityville Horror was a popular book and movie at a time when people were actually using their homes as investments as opposed to places to live, and they were very nervous about that. And I feel like maybe crime is crime fiction is more about well, as you say, it's about the uncertainties of the moment, right? What what kind of situation are we living in? Yes, that that's right. I I, I think. W- when, whatever the age, the, the, there is bound to be uncertainty in life. There's, there's uncertainty in every life, of course. And, and of, uh, at present, across the world, we're going through particular uncertainties with, uh, you know, the aftermath of a pandemic, uh, a terrible aftermath in many ways, and certainly a terrible pandemic. And then, of course, the international tensions, uh, Ukraine and all that. And, and there's a bit of a parallel between what's going on in the world uh, right now and what was going on in the world um, in 1918, 1919, with the, yeah, the end of the First World War and, uh, and, and the so-called Spanish flu pandemic. So at that time, people uh, leaned towards... Um, uh, the classic detective fiction that was how the golden age came about i think and maybe we're seeing uh, 
uh, in a different way, but something analogous to that. All right. Well, Martin Edwards, I have to get back to working on my uh, new crime novel, Herd Immunity, uh, which is set in the middle of the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, but uh, your book is The Life of Crime, Detecting the History of Mysteries and Their Creators. Uh, it's big, but it's very browsable and fun, and you can just pick whatever you want to read about. Dare I say, you could keep it next to the toilet. I'm not suggesting you do that, but it would be, you know, it would work that way is all I'm saying. Uh, the book's a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and uh, talk to a couple of our favorite writers and thinkers and talkers about television detectives. Vampires roll. You stretch your ass to wear in your suicide pole. And across from a faith that died before Jesus. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. No, the thing you call a mosquito mask never turned up. Well, then we've got to find it, Al. Jess, why am I getting the creepy feeling you're putting your pretty head into something that might be dangerous? No, don't pretty head me, Terwilliger. Anyway, you know me better than that. Point made. Your uh, Ernie Fishman called. But when I sent some guys over to your place to pick him up, he'd gone south. Uh. All right, so that's a little bit of Murder, She Wrote. Obviously. Um, so joining us now is Gene Seymour, uh, a writer, professional, spectator, pop culture maven and jazz geek by his own account. And Alexandra Petri, a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of Nothing is Wrong. And here is why they are both. Um, uh, we are we're lucky enough to have them both regularly on this show. Uh, and Alexandra recently wrote Angela Lansbury could make even murder feel cozy. Gene uh, has written uh, about Ross McDonald and other topics connected to all this. But yeah, we want to begin uh, by talking just a little bit about the pleasures of the television sleuth. So, so Gene, I, I don't know, you and I are roughly the same age. And I think we watched a lot of the same TV shows. Um, and so I don't know, are, first of all, is the television sleuth radically different from the, the literary sleuth, the sleuth who exists mainly on the page? I don't think so. Um, I, I do think that um, uh, 
it, it, and again, j- just like in literature, there are these divisions and subdivisions and subgenres of, of detective stories. You know, there's the hard-boiled private eye story. There's and there's and there's the you know the conventional Agatha Christie type of mystery. Of course, Murder She Wrote being an avatar of that. Um, but what what television adds, I think, what film and TV add to the puzzle mystery, the the the, the basic whodunit of uh, of Agatha Christie and people like that. They they sort of bring the atmosphere and some of the subtext that we project and find in, it's like say, uh, novels um, that, that are there. In other words, you know, um, the, the, the things that Richard Richard Levinson and Dick Link, uh, Bill Link rather, were the creators of Columbo, and they were fans of Ellery Queen, and uh, uh, they grew up. I mean, they exchange those kinds of mysteries the way. You know, kids today exchange comic books when they were when they were growing up in Philadelphia in the '40s, but um, they bring a lot more to those kinds of stories, those kind of Ellery Queen puzzle stories, in in their in their in Columbo and and some of the things that they did like Murder They also created Mannix. Um, then then you get out of books, so it's it's different in that. There's a lot of other stuff that gets brought in because of production values and things like that. So yeah, it, it, it's it's the same, but it's also different. I also believe I think Mannix is the detective who gets knocked unconscious in the highest percentage uh, yep. of his own serial episodes, and he would always just kind of he'd be knocked out cold, and he'd kind of wake up and he'd rub the back of his head three or four times, and then he kind of just get to his feet and start walking away, you know, going about his business, which is not how being knocked unconscious tends to work. Yep. Um, so Alexandra, yep. a lot of detectives that we encounter are either cops or they're private detectives. Although it's my understanding that you prefer kind of the amateur sleuth, the sleuth who's doing this for less coherent reasons, but for whatever reason has decided to go solve a murder. Absolutely. I think in a you know more just society, all crimes would be solved by meddling women on bicycles. But <laughs> I do, th- what I love about Murder, She Wrote, and if you just, I describe my television viewing habits to you, I will sound like I'm, several demographics older than I in fact am because I'm I'm like I'm so excited when I'm awake late enough to see murder she wrote come on the Hallmark channel but is that like every TV genre there's a fantasy element to it and the fantasy isn't just that every episode she gets to solve a murder but it's everything around her life that doesn't have to do necessarily with the murders is that she has this wonderful career where she's a respected author of books so respected that in an early episode she's on a bus and someone's going to mug her but a a reader is on the bus too and the reader says no that's jb fletcher and i've got to protect her so she's just universally beloved she goes all around the world people always know who she is they all know and love her books and every single place that she visits there's a friend from either whom she taught when she was a teacher or a friend from her own youth. And they all have kept in touch with her over decades. And they are always happy to see her and issuing her invitations. And not only that, she's a middle-aged woman who gets to be on the television, who isn't sitting there trying to look decades younger than she is. She's always in a footwear that's appropriate. It can be fashionable, but it's walkable. She doesn't have to drive around. I mean, really every aspect of her life, except for the murder is sign me up for it. So. I, I just want to see Jessica Fletcher every week, and if I have to pay the price of watching people get murdered around her, I'll gladly pay that price. Well, that well, is. Yeah, go ahead, Gene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's even with all that fame, 
there's something kind of, I don't want to say ordinary exa exactly because she's deaf. She's not ordinary, but she's, but there's something, she's a regular person. She's not, she's not Jack Reacher. No, no. And, and, and I think that one of, I think the principal appeal of, of a Jessica Fletcher, or for that matter, a Lieutenant Colombo, who does work for the authorities officially, but there is something kind of outsider-ish about him. He, first of all, you never see him with a partner. He's always doing these investigations on his own and following his own hunches and 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 and, and sort of separate from separate apart from all trappings of institutional authority and whatnot. In fact, he he's he's almost you know extremely ordinary on the surface. But you know, in your previous discussion, you talked about some of the appeals of, 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 of mystery fiction. I think the principal appeal of mystery fiction in general is, is the idea that you have these ordinary people, regular people, ordinary people who are allowed and indeed end up doing extraordinary things in the name of justice. You know, they 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 encourage the rest of us to sort of think that we have that kind of agency ourselves. In, in, in and I'm using this word loosely, in a democracy, in a democratic republic of some kind. And I think that it, it may, the people who read mysteries may not all necessarily yearn automatically for democracy, you know, be, you know, be, be de by definition democratic, but they at least yearn for democracy. They yearn and are interested in, you know, making sure that we still have that kind of access. So, there, so I think that's another appeal this is that that's that's part of the foundation of, of the appeal for these stories yeah i think you know alexandra it's, it's interesting to sort of i guess we have to always ask ourselves what are we here for what am i the specific person here for and you know in some ways your taste surprised me a little bit because you're one of the funniest humor writers in america today but it's, i feel like you're a little bit more attracted to less I don't know. I mean, we'll talk in just a sec, a few seconds about some of the detective series that I must sort of fracture the idea uh, of being a detective and, and play a lot of it for laughs. But I'm sensing, I don't know, Miss Mar Marple, Jessica Fletcher, it's like you, you like it pretty straight ahead. I do. I Well, I, I sort of I hit the two ends of the spectrum in terms of my murder shows where I like either a J Jessica Fletcher who is calmly solving things in a sweater. And I, I agree, sort of the, the democratic aspect of that, the idea that if you just paid enough attention, you too would be able to solve all of these murders. And so when you get later into the seasons, it'll be things like, well, when I heard this gentleman make the sound that the abandoned psycho house made, <laughs> I knew that somebody in that house had turned on a pipe that hadn't been used in a long time. This is genuinely a plot point that comes up. And at that point, you're like, well, <laughs> I don't know that I could actually identify that this was a pipe turning on from the vocal impression that this deranged fan made. But usually it's like, ah, if I'd been paying attention, I would have noticed that brooch was out of place. There is something out of place here. I, too, can do it. But on the flip side, the other uh, murder show I enjoy watching is Hannibal. And that's just like, Will Graham's got a special power and he can just using symbolism solve anything with his mind. And uh, there's just gore splashed everywhere. It's totally the opposite in terms of how cozy you want to feel. Uh, so there's a lot of whiplash for my husband, depending on which show I'm watching. <laughs> well, you know, Gene, there was a time. Well, actually, let's go back to Columbo for a second. We should play a little bit of Columbo just to remind people how it sounded. So Dylan, this is B1. Hey, somebody mentioned coffee. Yeah, I brought Mr. Mallory's coffee. I always brought him his coffee every night. Yeah? You still got some? Yeah, it's in the other room, but it's probably cold by now. That's all right. I drink anything. 
You know how much sleep I had the last two nights? Maybe five hours. Last night it was Betty Davis. Two o'clock in the morning, my wife wants to watch Betty Davis. So we're watching Betty Davis. Oh, this is brutal. Um, but you know, she's a terrific actress, this woman. Betty Davis. Forget about it. Um, excuse me. Lieutenant. This gentleman said he came here to see Mr. Mallory. What's going on in here? Who are you, sir? Norman Walpert, Lewis Manuscript Service. I'm here to pick up Mr. Mallory's tape for transcription. What are you doing here at this hour? Why do you come so late? Well, it's the same time I come every night. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, Lieutenant. I can vouch for that, yeah. Is Mr. Mallory all right? Well, I'm afraid Mr. Mallory's dead. Wh what happened? That's what we're trying to find out. So, Gene, I mean, obviously, Columbo, Columbo plays Columbo. Uh, Peter Falk plays Columbo playing Columbo. So Columbo kind of plays himself uh, as this sort of limited person who's has, having a lot of trouble even sticking to his own point and not getting lost in reflections about kidney-shaped coffee tables or Betty Davis or whatever he's uh, talking about at any given moment. But it was sort of an era where, you know, the, the, the detectives didn't necessarily come across as either sharp or back to Jack Reacher, you know, people of superhuman physical skills. You know, you yeah did have, you had the Rockford Files, you had Harry O, where David Jensen played this private detective who, A, uh, often had a car that broke down and was taking city buses to a lot of the detective-y things he would do, and then also had some kind of injury he'd received while on the police force so that his back would go out anytime he got into any kind of tussle with anybody. But there was a sense of, well, let's kind of undermine this a little bit. Let's take away some of the things that cause us to invest our confidence in detectives and see what's left. Yeah, and I think that in an age now where the superhero seems to be prevalent in pop culture, it's possible, maybe I'm showing my age and being nostalgic for that for those kinds of quirks and ticks and vulnerabilities. But again, um, I, I, I'd rather feel that I have the same agency and the same type of, of access to the truth that a Columbo has, even though I may too go off on a tangent on Betty Davis or <laughs> Judy Holiday. <laughs> I, I, I can vouch for that, Gene. Yeah. And 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 I and I and I want and I want that kind of access. And I still yearn for that kind of access, whatever I'm meaning fiction for escape or to to get something nailed down that I can't quite nail down any other way. Right. And there are some detectives and Alexandra Petra, I think this might be a little bit you'd have to go Back, dip back into the past to get to this one. But uh, when Helen Mirren was playing D.I. Jane Tennyson, um, I mean, this is a detective who had all kinds of problems, including a pretty massive drinking problem for several of the seasons. It was even more than what Gene's saying. I mean, we actually sort of felt a little bit more in possession of our faculties than the detective. You know, I mean, even though obviously she was a great detective. She was really smart. And she was running a, a staff that was either subordinate or really insubordinate. But there's the, sometimes the detectives have such massive flaws that we're almost secretly hoping they can hold it together. Yeah, I think that actually, because one of my favorites is Raymond Chandler. So I was listening eagerly earlier and Philip Marlowe, I mean, he's kind of a mess. He's always, he runs entirely on coffee. He never gets any sleep. He just sits in his apartment doing chess puzzles by himself. <laughs> That's his idea of a good evening. And, you, you know, all the women that he's constantly sort of the, the sorry the broads I, I apologize I, I he he would want me to refer to them as broads I think the ones with the legs that go all the way to the floor etc the eyelashes that don't quite reach their twitch chins he's always like 
having pretty good luck, but they also feel kind of pity for him just because he's like lurching from case to case. And at the end when he'll say, oh, and of course it was so-and-so who did it. You're like, I have no idea that Laird Brunette is coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) So part of the fun is just watching him shamble from crime scene to crime scene and get hit on the head and get back up and get injected with all kinds of drugs by the drug racketeers and get back up and get on a boat and be terrified. And like, it's funny watching him because everyone sort of, I feel like the image of him is much more of a Humphrey Bogart has everything under control. And in the books, he's sitting there, you know, he's getting on a little boat to go to a larger boat to see if he can figure out the case. And he's admitting, I'm terrified. I can't, you know, I hope I make it off this boat alive. And there's this sort of humanity that I think you can relate to. And that's actually what makes him cool is how vulnerable and shambolic he is rather than that he's effortlessly able to solve these things. So like Sherlock Holmes is the kind of the fantasy of you're effortlessly able to solve these things because your brain is like a chest of drawers and you've got all kinds of wonderful index cards in there and you could just pull them out and solve things and no one could ever catch it. But there's something, the plotting I'm kind of worried about this guy type detective that I, I do miss as well. <laughs> no, it's true. And I, Gene, there's sort of maybe a way in which there, there's a sense of cost for a lot of these guys. I mean, as we're, we've been saying, Columbo does appear to be pretty alone. He's got this wife, although nobody would be surprised if it turned out Mrs. Columbo didn't exist. You know, but there's clearly nobody else yeah. in his life. He doesn't have any colleagues. He doesn't have any friends. Um, and, and you know, he's got the dog. He's got, I mean, Inspector Morse is is avowedly kind of lonely. I mean, he like he presents as lonely. Wallander, incredibly lonely figure. And and yeah. as Alexandra is suggesting too, these guys are also just sort of damaged or damageable in other ways. There's a little bit of, I don't know if, am I stretching it to say there's a little bit of a Christ metaphor here that these these detectives are often kind of dying for us? Well, it, it often seemed that way with, with, with Chandler's uh, Marlowe, certainly, because as you say, he... <laughs> He sustained a lot of punishment and he, you know, and, and and Chandler wasn't shy about relating him to the knights, the knight errants of the Crusades, you know, but um, the reason why I'm a little more drawn to Lou Archer, the hero of the, of the Ross McDonald books is that, uh, you know, yeah, he's, he's got a few things in his own, lurking around his own uh, cedar closet that are, that are, uh, that are kind of dubious, if not as well known or not as out front, but he listens and, and 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 understanding is more important to him as as merely surviving he we want yeah he, he goes through the same kind of stuff the same myriad you know uh, roadblocks and, and attacks but but he wants to get through somehow by by at least approaching a level of understanding and as i said before um ha- having somebody as your surrogate in a story who has access to that kind of truth, no matter what, is kind of why I I still yearn for these for these stories whenever I can find them. Right, um, and poor Ross McDonald, he himself had a pretty terrible life too. It's not surprising that he <laughs> produced a protagonist like this. All right, we have to stop there. Uh, we were so lucky to have uh, both of these uh, panelists. Alexandra Petra is a columnist for the Washington Post, the author of Nothing Is Wrong, and here is why. She's about to go either commit or solve a very cozy murder. Uh, Jean Seymour is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, and jazz geek. Uh, I'm sure he'll be with us very soon on another nose. Uh, and we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Nick Qua to talk a little 
little bit about why we seem to be gravitating maybe a little bit more towards true crime. Just like watching the detectives. And we are back. Uh, I am fortunate to have with me today in the studio uh, the wonderful Dylan Rays. Uh, and uh, the producer of this particular episode was our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Although Jonathan McPants, I, I think, had an awful lot to do with how the uh, most recent, the previous segment, uh, the one about the TV detectives, turned out and pulled a lot of the audio that we're using today, too. So and now it's time uh, to talk about true crime and true crime, particularly in uh, the format uh, of uh, of podcast. And here to do that is Nicholas Qua. Nick Qua is a podcast critic for Vulture uh, and New York Magazine. He probably was, you probably were the first ever podcast critic uh, and uh, have stayed on top of the heap uh, ever since then. So it's great to have you back on the show. And uh, let's talk about some true crime, Nick. Hey, it's such a pleasure to be back. So there's, I mean, McLuhan would want us to figure this out. Like, what what <laughs> is it about the podcast format and true crime? Is it simply that, like, little baby ducks we imprinted on it because of serial? Or is there something about the way podcasts lay themselves out that makes a true crime narrative very hospitable? Oh, my goodness. That's such a big, extremely loaded question. And uh, yeah, okay. So to some extent, yeah. I mean, I know the serial people would kind of argue against being uh, called true crime, particularly that first season. But um, there is this sort of sense that 2014, which is when that show came out, uh, was kind of like an interesting turn, right? Like you also had, I believe the Jinx was <laughs> came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, kind of electrified this moment of like modern, the, the modern true crime consumptions that we had. But I also kind of feel like a lot of why uh, true crime feels like the um, bloody beating heart of podcasting is because, you know, the medium is relatively new and true crime has has always been long been a primary form of, of fixation for Americans and people around the world. And so it just felt like a natural genre that was already popular to be imported into this new space. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, I could sit here and try to be an anthropologist and go like, there's something elemental <laughs> about being told uh, a grisly, horrible murder story. Yeah, I think there might also be a structural thing, too, and, and a bar to entry thing. I mean, it kind of goes back to what Alexander Petra was saying in the previous segment, that there's something very attractive about the idea that if you just watched really carefully, as carefully as Jessica Fletcher does, you could figure this thing out. You could figure out, uh, you know, what really happened. And and some of that, I think, is there in the podcasting true crime. First of all, people, you know, if they don't work for Gimlet or Wondery or something, I mean, you can get a podcast going with a fairly limited amount of capital. Uh, uh, and if you're not working for Gimlet or Wondery, nobody's going to fire you either. <laughs> and you can just kind of go, you can go at it. You can you can stay at it. Absolutely. And you, you can do 22 hour segments if that's what you think you have to do. So in a way, for something like that, for the kind of the amateur sleuth, it, it, it's almost made to order. Absolutely. So so there's a there's a critic and author. Her name is Sarah Weinman. She's done a tremendous amount of work about the theory of true crime, and she kind of calls or considers this current current moment like it's a it's a boon for quote-unquote participatory true crime, uh, folks really sort of feeling like they're part of an investigation. 
Um, and part of it is like an expression of digital communities, right? Podcasts aren't just where this happens. There's a lot of um, amateur sleuthing that happens on Reddit. There's there's a whole, you know, many, many cultures that pop up in TikTok and, and Instagram to some extent of people, you know, solving disappearances or whatever or trying to do so. So there is this new like internet enabled um, phase that we're in, but it does feel like a natural sort of extension or endpoint of of this sort of broader fascination with um, the bad stuff that happens around us. But it's never obviously limited to just these new spaces, right? I think there's a reason that um, headlines going back way back when and magazine features like tend to be true crimey stuff that has a has a mystery at the center of the whole thing. Right. So um, I, I guess the question you probably get asked a lot is, are we ever at peak? I mean, this is this is so ingrained now that, I mean, Tina Fey on Only Murders in the Building can kind of play <laughs> this opportunistic queen pin of the, tri- the true crime podcast genre. I mean, it's so pervasive, but it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. I mean, you have a much better grip on this than I would. The thing is, is that like I, I don't know if peak is possible, but I also I also feel like you need something to displace the peak, right? So, <laughs> you know, a similar conversation you could have is that like, are we in peak IEP uh, entertainment? So like, all our movies, our superhero movies, <laughs> all all the sort of products that we're getting on Netflix, all these Ryan Murphy shows seem to be sort of ripped from the headline stuff. And so we're, we seem to be just in certain kind of modality of <laughs> entertainment, but like. It, they all do latch on something very, very elemental about human beings. I, I kind of feel like it's asking, and you know, this might be a bit crude, but it's like every reach peak pornography, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they've run along the same circuit. And I, I think the answer is no, but if it does feel like it phases away to something else, it will be to something else similar. Right. And maybe there's something else similar. I'm a little bit indebted to McPants on this one, but is <laughs> is taking, you know, taking that whole true crime idea and then applying it to something smaller and lower stakes. Uh, he suggests dead eyes, you know, in which the mystery yes. is, why didn't Tom Hanks like me? Uh, and, and then he, he sort of exploits all of the structural aspects and modalities, to use your term, of true crime. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a rhythm of the way that we tell stories, right? There has to be a reason that you're propelled for it to the next thing. And sometimes the structure um, kind of expresses itself as the cliffhanger. So at the end of an episode of a television show, you have to question what's going to happen next. But there's always the core reason that you started the show in the first place and that you are that you have a relationship with a story in the first place. And there's always a question. And the question is always a form of a mystery, I think. Right. And it, it, I think also there's a distinction. I guess we need a little more time to make this distinction. But I mean, there's a way in which Serial, I think, did something pretty radical, uh, radical, not just within podcasting, but within this kind of narrative, which is show your work. Right. I mean, you're watching them kind of fumble through. I mean, in that the Adnan season anyway, you're watching them kind of fumble through this process, teach themselves essentially to be detectives and, and take little whimsical looks at the scenery that's passing them by. And to me, that was the thing that was so hypnotic. Yeah, there's an interestingness there because that is definitely true of the first season of Serial. But when I think about like one of the more recent Serial Productions uh, shows, which is The Trojan Horse Affair, mm-hmm. um, it is itself a pursuit of an investigation. It keeps you very much in the heads of these two men who are like pursuing this, this story that pertaining to a UK political scandal. But if there's a way in which, and maybe it's because they were released all at once, <laughs> that um, you can be in the heads of an investigator without feeling like you're investigating 
along necessarily. Um, and there's like, it feels like it's a kind of a more interesting or safer quote unquote ethical line there. <laughs> right. And that, well, but, I also um, think, I mean, yeah. I mean, that one is kind of a buddy cop movie too. Their relationship is really the story exactly. of that one. We have to stop there. Nick Kwa is podcast critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks to everybody who helped out on this show today. And thanks to those of you who listen. Don't murder anybody for the rest of the day. Okay. Okay.